you. I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles tonight to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 to 20. We, uh, at Reedville, we've been, we've been going through Mark, and we, we resume that today as we are looking forward to this new chapter. And this is continuing on in Mark's, uh, in Mark's ministry or presentation of unfolding the identity of Jesus. Throughout the first chapter, he tells us exactly what the gospel is about, that it is about that unfolding of who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God. We've seen a lot in, this, in the first four chapters of what his ministry looked like in public teaching as one who had authority over the entirety of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, teaching unlike any one of them. And then not only that, you see his power over nature and healing sicknesses and diseases and raising people over dead. Yes, even in chapter 1, healing, or, uh, healing a man with demons, possessed by demons, this being the second instance of that in Mark chapter 5. And as we look at that, we're going to unpack it in different ways, but we know that Jesus has this unique power that even the winds and the seas obey him as we left off with last time in Mark chapter 4, and we'll pick back up there where he even shows more, once again, his power even again over the demons. So we'll look at that in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Hear now God's word and give attention to it, for it is his holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send, him, send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, but he did not permit him, but said to him, go, to your, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. That ends the reading of God's word. Let's seek the Lord's face together in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again we give you thanks and praise for being here tonight. I pray, O God, that you will help us by your Holy Spirit to hear your word as it testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom and through whom no one can be saved. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will indeed be our teacher as we hear what wondrous things are found in your word. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure that several of you before, as you came to church and you were seeking to become members of a Bible-believing church, you probably were asked by the session at one point, now can you give me a credible profession of faith? And when you answered that question, what did you say to them? You probably said something in the neighborhood of like, you know, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus is a Savior. I believe that he's my Savior. And I believe that I, he has come to save me from my sin and so that I can be with him in glory one day. It's some sort of conversion story like that. And if you can think back to the moment when you, were, when you first believed, what you were like, how you looked at things, how you looked at people, how you looked at your neighbors, how your friends and the world around you, you probably, I would like to think, looked at all of that and were able to look at it with new eyes. I can't help but think of one such person who even describes that in his own personal conversion story. There's a man who was a Muslim apologist. His name was Nabil Qureshi. He died of a long battle of cancer a couple of, number of years ago at this point. But he grew up in a Muslim family. And in his days in college, he was introduced to the Christian faith by a friend of his named David, who was consistent and persistent in pressing home the truths of the gospel to him. And after four years of, of fighting back, knowing what it would cost him, he finally surrendered and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And in his book, where he illustrates his testimony, where he's giving some of those apologetic reasons that, that David gave to him from leaving Islam to become a Christian, he said in that book that when he got up from his knees and when he had finished praying, he said he saw everything different, looked at everything different. The world seemed different. He even looked at himself differently. He looked at his parents differently, his friends, and all of those who he went to the mosque with, he looked at them differently. It was a marked change of one man whose eyes were blind and now they see, whose ears were stopped and now they hear. He had been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ to look and act and think and speak more like Jesus. And as you think about those times, as you think about that conversion in your own life, it ought to have changed you. It ought to affect how you look at your friends. It ought to affect how you look at your neighbors, not as people that you used to run around with and it's all hunky-dory. It's as the people you, you look at as who are the same as you, sinners in need of a Savior. It affects how you handle problems, how you handle difficult providences in your life, not as someone who can, who can, who can make the change on your own. But as someone who is fully like you gave, when you gave your heart to Jesus, you commit your whole life, every problem, every trial, and every tribulation, wholly to Him. 
And no doubt that this is part of the point that Jesus is trying to illustrate here for us tonight. As I mentioned earlier, this is not the first time that Jesus has had an interaction with demons. Throughout his public ministry from chapter 1 to chapter 4, he has consistently and persistently demonstrated his authority over the Pharisees, his authority over sickness and disease, his authority over demons, yes, and even as chapter 4 ends, his authority over the winds and the storms, that yes, even they must obey him. And you see how that sort of shifting, that change of mind begins to affect even his own disciples that where they end chapter 4 in verse 41 where they say who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him who is this man that even the demons stumble and tremble and fall before him and seek permission not to be sent into the abyss like the demons here today show us and if the previous intimation with Jesus had interactions with the demons in chapter 1 If that were to show us exactly that he had the power over the demons, that he had power over heaven and earth and demons and angels and everything like that, this more more meticulous unfolding, this one shows us something a little more, something that in more detail that Matthew in his account doesn't fully show and something that Luke in his account of this same story shows in a little more depth but still Mark shows more fully here. And that's this. That Jesus' power over demons shows his power to convert people totally. That Jesus' power over demons shows his power to convert people totally. And I want to give you that in two ways. And the first way I want to give it to you is in verses 1 to 9 of him dealing with a man that's totally controlled by demonic power. And then in the second place in verses 10 to 20, I want to show you how that same man was totally changed by heavenly power, one who was totally controlled by demonic power, and then that same one who was totally changed by heavenly power. Let's look at that first idea of him being totally controlled in verses 1 to 8. And in verses 1 to 5, it shows you that that very isolated nature of this control. Look at verse 1 and 2. They came to the other side of the sea, that, that they speaking to Jesus and his disciples. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus is showing us something that he consistently does throughout the Gospel of Mark. He consistently is going into Judea and among the Jews and then withdrawing and going out to the Gentiles. It's portraying for us something that the Apostle Paul portrays for us in the first chapter of Romans where he says the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Jesus is showing us that, that ultimately that the same messianic identity that was to show the Jews that he was their king is also that same king who's going to be for the Gentiles. We see that he's also, that this being this land, this country of the Gerasenes, also Gentile country, largely because when he goes onto the Sea of Galilee, he's already gone out of Judea, but more importantly, as it relates in our text, as you see later on, they are herding pigs. You know, this wasn't something that was done in, in, in the Jewish land. They, they wouldn't have been around anything unclean. And more than that, like this demoniac who was among the dead, who was among you know, tombs and, and dead people, the Jews wouldn't have even been anywhere near that. 
So Jesus is very clearly in Gentile territory where they are run and rife with paganism, probably messing with the occult, as is so often the case in that world. And Jesus, instead of, like the most of the Jews in his day, instead of running away from that stuff, he goes to it because, I mean, at least in verse, in verse 2, when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately that man comes to him with that unclean spirit, with a demon. And one of the things that we need to confront ourselves with as we, before we proceed is that if we're going to say, as, as one pastor put it this week, if we're going to say that we believe that the Bible is God's inspired and inerrant word that necessitates that we believe in the supernatural, that means that we believe demons are real. What's being described here is not someone who's simply being diagnosed with a, with a sense of mania. He's not someone who's crazy or needs to be locked up in an asylum, but he is a man that is under the total control in an isolated and degrading way by real spiritual demonic forces. And how does he describe him? How does Mark describe someone who is controlled and possessed by a demon? He begins to do that in verses 3, and then we'll allude to Luke chapter 8 and how Luke adds some detail, but look how he describes him. He lives among the tombs. He lives among the dead and the unclean. No one could, be, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He had freakishly extreme strength, such that not a single solitary soul, the Greek is actually pretty emphatic here, of showing how not anybody was even able to subdue him. In fact, when you get down to verse 4 where it says no one had the strength to subdue him, the idea and the word behind that is something of like being unable to tie down an animal. This man, who had this freakish strength, who was isolated among the tombs, had the strength and mind and heart of one who is nothing more than a degraded animal. That's how far low that this man had been brought. And not only that, in verse, verse 5 it says this, Night and day this man was among those tombs and he was crying out, likely for help likely in agony, likely in pain for what this demon had been putting him through psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever it might have been, as we even see, to, to use modern parlance, he'd become a cutter. He was cutting himself, lacerating his body, his arms, and everything in between, where it says there he was cutting himself with stones, likely probably even trying to kill himself to free him of the agony that was there to befall him. And in fact, if you couldn't see, couldn't imagine it any worse, in Luke's account, he actually goes further to show that this same man was someone who was prowling around himself without any clothes on. He had, he had been subjected to those very indignities. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3, what was the very first thing that our first parents did when they fell into sin? They sought to clothe themselves with the fig leaves and hide themselves among the bushes to cover their shame from God Almighty because they know who they knew who they were at that point. Their eyes were opened, they knew they were naked, and they were ashamed. And this man, by contrast, was subjected and opened to that shame, and he had no regard for that because that is where this demon had left him. So he had freakishly human strength that no one could contain him. Likely he was run out unto the tombs, living among the unclean because no one could be around him. No, people were likely even afraid of him. He had been subjected to the indignities through nakedness. 
He was crying out for help and in agony. He was cutting himself, likely trying to relieve himself of the pain. And for all of those reasons, this man was the, was the poorest, soulless creature that was ever around as these demons were seeking his very life. This poor man, whatever and however it was that he had been, he had been confronted with these demons had no other recourse but to come immediately when he saw Jesus afar off, but to come and fall down at his feet as if he couldn't go anywhere else. And if we look at verse, continue to look on, not only is this isolating, it is also degrading because the sixth thing that we see here is that at no point in this chapter, not at any point in Luke's account or Mark Matthew's account, does he ever have his identity. That's one of the other things that's so degrading about this too. These demons, we never know this man's name. He had lost his very identity and was subject to the, de- to the whims of the demons. And you see that how that's unpacked in verses 6 to 8, don't you? And when he saw Jesus from afar off, he ran and fell down before him. And so some of these pronouns are actually hard to pin down. Who was it that was actually running to Jesus? Was it the man or was it the man under compulsion of the demons? It's probably much more likely the latter. Again, if the man doesn't have any identity, it's the demon that's forcing him into doing that. And this same one came crying out where he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by by God. Do not torment me. For Jesus was saying, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. One of the things that that happens a lot in the ancient world with exorcisms is that what this demon is really trying to do is he is trying to gain some sort of last-ditch effort foothold of control over Jesus by giving his identity, by almost giving him a command saying, I adjure you not to torment me, not to send me to the abyss that Paul taught, or that John rather talks about in Revelation chapter 20. He's saying, don't send me there quite Yet, because Jesus was still still expanding his kingdom and Satan wanted his free reign. But then Jesus gets us to this. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now there's a lot of significance behind that name when he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. At this point, Jesus has all of the control. But the degrading nature of this man is how just how many countless demons this man probably had of what was facing Jesus in that moment. In the ancient world, there were, in, Roman, in Roman troop settings and Roman phalanxes, they, had, they were divided up into groups of companies and legions and the like. And some of the, some of the commentators that I had come across had a varying array of what kind of amount of soldiers was within a given legion of Roman soldiers. It goes from as low as you know 2,000 to 2,500 to as many as 6,000 soldiers among a Roman legion. And so if you were to see that neat equation of legions of demons to legions of Roman soldiers, it's likely that Jesus was sitting there in that moment faced with anywhere from 2,500 to 6,000 or possibly even more demons sitting there right in this man's fit, right in his face. 6,000 demons. And it's really remarkable, isn't it, that when you think about it, and this was something that a pastor had brought up that sort of stuck with me and that, I, that we would want to bring here from this text as far as a, a learning point, 
is that, it, it, is that one of the things that is so sticks with us is that as Jesus is confronted with upteen two, four, six, however many thousands of demons it were, how sad it can sometimes be, how divided the church of Christ can be, and yet the demons of hell can be so united in one single force to undermine the church of God and its mission. So often when the church of Christ has different visions for how to pursue the mission of the church, who they want in this person or that person or that work or that ministry, visions, opinions, and everything else can come to, to lock heads. And nothing can get done when arguments and division begins to happen. And that's what Satan seeks to exploit because his single and united purpose in his life, in his spiritual life, is to destroy the church of God. And if he can get God's people at each other's throats, fighting one another, angry at one another, seeking to destroy one another, then he will exploit those divisions because he knows that we, unlike angels in heaven or hell, are prone to be able to, while we may be able to do the good on one hand, we are also able to do evil, sinful things. But not the demons. The demons have that single purpose to undermine God's kingdom, to undermine Christ's kingdom. That's their purpose. That's why they're seeking to, to, to be free. That's why they're seeking to continue parading around in the countryside. But one of the things that the same that the pastor brought out that I think was so cool, that I thought was so, that hit me, is that it didn't matter whether there was one demon or two demons or however many thousands of demons that were in front of Jesus at this point that even the legion of demons still had to fall down to their knees at the foot of Jesus Christ. And that even, that even six or ten thousand demons could not stop heaven's onslaught from saving this man's life. And that is, no, that is the same for you as well when you think about conversion. That heaven and hell, can, that heaven and anything on earth can be in the way but nothing will stop heaven to come after you as, as sinners, if you would but come to receive Jesus Christ to be saved. Nothing can stop you because Jesus, stop him, because Jesus came and lived and died that sinners may come to Christ. But second, this man who was totally controlled and this man who heaven came to, to save, who Jesus came to save in this moment, is one who is at one point totally controlled by demonic power is now in the second place totally changed by heavenly power in verses 10 to 20. He's totally changed. And that first means that we need to see Jesus as that higher authority. Look at verse 10. And he, the demon, begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now he knows at one level that by, saying, by Mark saying this, that, G, that the fate of this demon rests wholly in Jesus' hands. That's why he's begging him, almost prostrating himself as though he has no other recourse. And in verse 11 and 12, it says this, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to those pigs and let us enter them. And so in verse 13, he gives you this, So he gave them permission. Now one of the things we didn't do tonight that we did this morning at Reedville is we had an Old Testament scripture reading. We had an Old Testament scripture reading where we visited, uh, where we read from rather, Job chapter one verses one to twelve. And if you if you remember from anything from Job, what how, how does that story open? It starts with a righteous man named Job 
who in the in the courts of heaven is presented with God and Satan are presented arguing about who is who is this most righteous man and God says you know you take my servant Job he's a righteous man he's a good man he would never deny me and Satan says oh I bet he could and God gives him the permission to do it only not to take a hair off this man's head if Satan has to operate on God's, God the Father's permission, the demons of hell have to operate under his permission as well. That's why Jesus says this. Now, why Jesus gives them permission, it doesn't say. Perhaps it's not the time yet for heaven and earth to, to meet where, where Jesus Christ vanquishes all foes. But for all intents and purposes, he gives them that permission to enter those pigs. And in verse 13, it continues on. They came out at Jesus' word, they entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, I want you to imagine this. I don't know how many of you have ever herded pigs or goats or cows or anything like that, but I don't know if you've ever seen a number of 2,000 of them. But if you saw a whole herd of, of animals coming at you, you would naturally want to try to you know, get out of the way as fast as you could because it was a sight sight to behold. In fact, we use the analogy this morning of buffaloes. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen 2,000 buffaloes coming at you, but they're coming at you at blazing speed. You, you might not get out of the way in that case. But, but the point of the matter is just the, the sheer enormity, the sheer amount of seeing all of this, of all of these demons coming down into those pigs to die, this is a clear economic cataclysmic event for the people of that region. But it didn't matter in this moment. It didn't matter that whether or not the, the, the local economy fell down or if it broke down. What mattered most in Jesus' mind at this point was that this poor soul who was completely and totally controlled by demons would be freed from their control. And that was his mission and purpose, to show that he still has the power by the Spirit of God to change people, to totally change them and convert them. Now you would think after seeing this man totally converted, totally free, that the people would respond appropriately. But that's not how they do. Look at, verses 14, look at verse 14. Jesus' work is to wholly renew, but look at them. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what had happened. And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now I want you to note the characteristics of this man. Think about where he was before. He was no longer lashing out in extreme strength, but he was at total peace. He was one who had the mind and acts of an animal, but he was now in his right mind. One who was completely among the dead is now among the living, and as Luke portrays it in Luke 8, he was at Jesus' feet worshiping him. And furthermore, not only that, he was, describes him as clothed. This man who was running around in shame and nakedness is now fully clothed and has his dignity that Jesus has given him. He is nothing short of a new creation. He is a new person, totally heart, soul, mind, and strength, completely, totally changed. And what were the people's response? What would be your response? 
If any one of us came here today and saw someone who had been totally changed and renewed by the Spirit of God, we, I would hope, like the angels of heaven, would rejoice. But the people were afraid. They weren't afraid out of, you know, reverent fear. You know, you see in the Old Testament, for example, we're confronted with the, the idea, the language of, you know, fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's not sort of fear in terms of fear of like something might, bad might happen, but it's reverent fear. It's worshipful fear. But these people were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of his person. They were afraid of his power. They were afraid of Jesus because knowing what this man once was, they knew that someone who had the power of this man like Jesus, who destroyed their economy, that there was nothing that this man, this Jesus, could not do. He, there's nothing that he could not demand of them. There is nothing that he could not require of them. And then by verse 16, when they had described it to him, and what had happened to the pigs, by verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from them, to depart from their region. They wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted nothing to do with him. Instead of being thankful and grateful that this man who was probably terrorizing their town, terrorizing their country, probably even terrorizing their herd and their stock, they were more concerned at this point for their livestock than this man's salvation, than this man's peace, than this man's deliverance. But what was, there was one person though that stood back. There was one person who didn't have that response. And that was this man who had been totally changed by Jesus because he knew what Jesus had done, how he had had mercy upon him. Where in verse 18 he says this, And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons, still not knowing his name, begged him that he might be with him. Now this language right here that you see in verse 18, that he begged him that he might be with him, this is the language that's usually associated with discipleship that he might follow him, that he might learn from him, that he might be able to scrupulously obey every whim and command of Jesus, not out of, out of a dutiful sense of like, this is what I have to do to achieve and maintain acceptance with Jesus, but out of a grateful heart and attitude of frame of obedience that says, you know, I, I do this because I love you for what you have done for me in my life. You have made me a new person and I have nothing, I, I have to serve you. He knew what the, what the townspeople knew. Jesus could ask of him, demand of him, anything that he wanted. And that's the ride that this man wanted to be on because he knew who Jesus was, as we'll see here in a few moments. But I also want to show you something else. Even though we don't have this man's, this man's name, the total change is a shift from what his identity once was latched onto to what it now is. He was totally dominated by the demons. He was totally controlled by them to where his identity was confused with the name of Legion. And now it is totally united to Jesus Christ. And by being united to Jesus Christ by faith, he had nothing and nowhere else to go but to follow him and to follow him gladly. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't deny him the right of discipleship per se. Jesus doesn't deny the work. But he has a better commission for him. What he said, look what he says in verse 19. Jesus did not permit him, but said, Go to your home, go to your go home to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. 
this is the first time that, that this has happened, at least as, I, as my recollection serves me, that in Mark's gospel, he doesn't send this person and allow him to follow him, but he, rather he sends him back to his neighbors, his friends, his home, to tell them about Jesus. That even though these townspeople, even though these, his countrymen were ready to be rid of Jesus in his person, this would not be the last time that they heard of him. And look what he says there, because this is, still, this is going to be true in verse 20. This is what he tells them to tell him. How much the Lord has done for you. And the Greek that this is in a, as if I recall, this is in a perfective tense, which means that it's speaking to the abiding uh, nature of what God has done for him. It lasts not just from that moment, but for all time. The change in this man's life didn't happen once, but lasts for eternity as he's speaking to how the Lord had mercy on him and delivering him from the power of this demon. This is what you were to tell people. This is what you and I tell people in, the, in our neighborhoods and in our homes and in our, and in our you know, everyday occurrences. We tell people the very same in how we live, what, Jesus has, what the Lord has done for us and how Jesus has had mercy on us. But look at how Jesus introduces it. He says, how much the Lord has done for you. The word there is kurios. When translated from the Old Testament into the New, from Hebrew into Greek, what is being translated here is the word, usually the word Yahweh, God's covenant name from Exodus chapter 3. He's saying, look what Yahweh God, the God of Israel, has done for you. But what does the man do in verse 20? When he went away, he began to proclaim it. Now, the word there is for cure, is for um, is for preaching that we see in other in other contexts. He is to preach whole, openly, boldly what Jesus has done for him, how much Jesus had done for him. What's Mark portraying for us here? Think back to the messianic secret that I was mentioning a little while ago. The wheels are beginning to turn for Jesus and his disciples by the end of chapter 4 when they say, Who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? But here Mark is portraying it very clearly, that the Lord who has done this work in this man's life is none other than Jesus. Jesus is the same as the Lord who has done this. He has given, Jesus has worked this work of the miracle in to totally and completely changing this man by heaven's power that heavenly power from on high that Jesus had, that even the demons had to obey and leave, this is that power by a word. The demons had to obey and they had to leave. And that's why it's important to recognize how this passage shows us his power is to convert people totally by, by breaking the power of this man being totally controlled by demons to being totally changed, converted by heavenly power. But before I end, I want to give you two points because there are two main takeaways that I want you to take from this. And the first thing is this. To be a true disciple of Jesus is to wholly obey his commands. Now, that's a broad statement, but it's generally still true. Because whenever we look at, like, say, the Ten Commandments, for example, when Jesus says, you know, you shall not commit adultery, I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you hate someone in your heart, you've already broken the commandment not to murder. These are high callings. They're seemingly impossible by the will and power of human beings. But saved by Jesus Christ, we are enabled with a new, fresh look and face, heart, soul, mind, and strength to be able to do it by his grace. You hear the command, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This man, when he was possessed by the demons, had no, had no strength to do but to serve himself and, his demon, and the demons. He had nothing in his mind but that of an animal, so he could not worship him rightly. But once Jesus had worked that work of conversion in him to make him totally new, to where he's looking at everything completely and utterly different, he knows that there is nothing that Jesus can't command of him that he would not gladly obey. And that if Jesus says, you know, to use common parlance, if Jesus says, jump, you say how high. And you do so gladly because he is the Savior that has changed you. And you don't do that. You don't seek the acceptance. You don't obey out of a mere sense of trying to earn acceptance with Jesus. You do it because he's given you a new heart, a new soul, a new mind, and a new strength to do it. That's why we obey his commands. Second, there is no one that Jesus can't change. That's, there is no one that Jesus can't change. Now, I'm sure there's some people in your life who you would love the Holy Spirit to hit, hit upside the head with what my pastor called the Holy Two-by-Four to get their attention. You would love nothing more for them, than for them to see that you know, their, their path with alcoholism and drunkenness, with workaholism, with selfishness, all of that, living for themselves, not seeing the severity of the errors of what they've done to lead their lives into total ruin to either prison, imprisonment like this man with his demons, or to death itself. You would love nothing more than for them to change. And there's no step, there's no formula that you can give them to help them change, except by the saving and converting power of faith in Jesus Christ. And that is something that only the Spirit can work in man. And so insofar as we do what, this, what Jesus commands of this man, to go and tell his friends of how much the Lord has done for him and how he's had mercy on him, the most that we can do ultimately in people's lives is to consistently share that message, to share that message of the hope of gospel change, to pray for the Spirit's work, to continue to press that home to them and how they may change, but ultimately knowing that it's the Spirit's power and prerogative to change and convert sinners like you and like me. The thing of the hymn of Amazing Grace where we sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Because this was the Savior who died for you, and he died for me. That's the power of the Savior to convert and change sinners. Let's pray together. Father, I pray... And thank you that if there be any of us here tonight, whether we are a believer or an unbeliever, I pray, Father, that you will work in us to change us, to show us more of yourself, to help us to live and to look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And where our hearts may be hard, I pray that you may soften it, that you may help us to commit our whole lives, not just personally, but familially, in work and in life, I hope and pray that you will help us all by the power of Jesus Christ to do just that and to commit it to you. And I ask that you will help us to do that even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Our final hymn, and we'll stand for this one, is hymn 653, uh, Jesus is all the world to me. Hymn 653, we'll sing verses 1 and 2 and then 4. 1, 2, and 4 of 653. Stand with me as we sing.